Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tenuva in Thornton, Colorado. This is Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open with prayer. Avinu Malfakino, our Father, our King Lord. We're excited about the um, commemoration of Shavuot, which is right around the corner. Lord, we have been counting the Omer as the days have passed between Passover, Pesach, and we're now poised to enter into the time of Pentecost, where we remember that you have poured out your Holy Spirit, your Ruach HaKodesh, according to Acts chapter 2, and according to the promise that you've given to the uh, prophets. We also know that according to the sages of old, the um, the Jewish calendar, that the commemoration of um, of Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, also takes place around this same time period. And so, Lord, with anticipation, we um, we uh, excitedly uh, uh, look forward to remembering the giving of your words and the giving of your spirit. And Lord, what an awesome lesson that we can learn by putting these two commemorations together. For indeed... Uh, it is your word that anchors us in your promises and anchors us uh, in your truths, gives us a an objective uh, view of what truth is. We don't have to guess what holiness is. We can see it written out for us in the pages of your words. And by the same token, by your spirit, we know that we are being set apart, that we are being um um, supercharged, as it were. We're being empowered uh, to be a light for you, to be witnesses for you, to be salt and light in this very dark world. And so, Father, we realize then that without your word, uh, we won't have a, uh, a right compass to chart our course. We will, we'll get off chart. We'll get off course. We'll, we'll veer off the map. <laughs> because we won't have a map. And so your word is the very map. As the psalmist said, it's a, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And at the same time, we need your spirit to, to be enabled to walk in your ways. And so help us to uh, appropriate both the truths of your word and of your spirit in our lives. Thank you for this commentary. 
um, and the study to the book of Galatians. Thank you for the book itself. I thank you that the students have been able to join me week by week. And um, I thank you that we've been able to go through the material. Lord, we want to um, we want to learn truths afresh. We want to be able to affirm that you are our God and that we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the good news. It is the power of salvation unto the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we want to be able to um, continue to press into your words so that we can be better equipped to be people of the living God, so that we can be... Um, uh, ambassadors for your kingdom. Uh, draw us close together for this uh, short hour that we have t- uh, together. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Well, let's date stamp our recording. Today is um, Tuesday. Um, I, I have to guess because I'm a day ahead on my side of the world. So it's Tuesday. May, it's it's the last day of May, I think it's the 31st of May, if I'm correct, according to most of your calendars, but on my side of the world, it's actually um, June 1st, 2016, but at any rate, I welcome you to this um, live internet study on the book of Galatians, and we are on week 29. Recall that this study follows a um, commentary that I wrote to the book of Galatians, which is available online. You can go to my website at www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. And right on the homepage, <clears throat> right on the homepage, you can um, click on the link that says Galatians Commentary, and then from there you should be able to find all the information you need related to the written commentary in PDF document or uh, HTML web page version. Um, you'll also be able to find information regarding the uh, live internet study that I conduct every Tuesday evening. Um, go ahead and click on that link for the the uh, live Tuesday night study and you'll find out that we meet every week for an hour and we meet for 10 weeks at a time. That's our semester length. We meet for 10 weeks and then we take a break for two weeks. So if you'll notice, since we're on week 29, well then we're right up against a semester break. So we'll meet tonight and we'll meet next week and then we'll take a break for two weeks, give you time to catch up on past studies, give me time to go back through the, through the notes and see if there's something that I need to correct or whatnot. And then we'll just turn around and keep studying. And um, uh, after each hour-long teaching, we, um, we in the live class, we engage in a uh, heartfelt um, chat session with the teacher and with the students. You're certainly welcome to join us if you are um, accessing this commentary live. Otherwise, if you're listening to this after the fact, this is the pre-recorded uh, podcast, the iTunes version, or whatever, you maybe you're accessing it from my website. Well, then you're not going to be able to engage in my uh, 15-minute Q&A chat session because that's reserved for live students only. So, uh, come on out and join us Tuesday evenings, uh, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, live from the Internet. Uh, The liturgy tonight is going to be a little different. I'm actually not going to read a specified um, passage out of the the Torah, out of the Tanakh, and out of the uh, Apostolic Writings. Instead, I'm just going to read a, um, a general blessing for the Torah, uh, which is taken out of the uh, the prayer book that I've got in front of me right here. There's nothing. There's not going to be anything on the screen for you. Um, and then for the reading, for the additional reading, I'm gonna we're gonna be studying Acts chapter 10 tonight. You're thinking, wait a minute, 
This is a study on Galatians. Where does Acts 10 fit into it? Hang on. I'll let you know in a moment. But um, So let me just go ahead and read this blessing for the Torah. It's just uh, three paragraphs, and it'll actually, actually four paragraphs. And it will actually include uh, a passage out of the book of Numbers and a passage out of the, um, out of the Mishnah. So uh, I'll read in English and in Hebrew for you, okay? Uh, the English reads, Blessed are you, Hash I'll read all of the English first, and I'll read all of the English, uh, the Hebrew after that. Blessed are you, Hashem our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments, and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Hashem our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth, in the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring, and our offspring's offspring, and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah, for its own sake. Blessed are you, Hashem, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, Hashem, giver of the Torah. And Hashem spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, So shall you bless the children of Israel, saying to them, May Hashem bless you and safeguard you. May Hashem illuminate his countenance for you and be gracious to you. May Hashem turn his countenance to you and establish peace for you. Let them place my name upon the children of Israel, and I shall bless them. And then this is the, the part out of the Mishnah. These are the precepts that I have that have no prescribed measure. The corner of a field, which must be left for the poor. The first fruit offering, the pilgrimage, acts of kindness, and Torah study. The Hebrew of those four um, paragraphs reads, Kulano Yodesh Machavalomde Tortakalishma Baruchata Dunai Hamlame Toala Mo Yisrael Baruchata Dunai Lohenu Melaka Olama Sherba Harba Numikolha Amim Venatan Lanu et Torto Baruchata Adonai Notain Ha Torah Vaidebel Dunai El Moshe Lemor Daber El Aharon Vel Benaiv Lemor I mean, okay, that's the liturgy for the evening. And one of the reasons why I changed the liturgy just for this particular section is because we're going to be reading a lot of Greek in the um, study itself, so I decided not to have a separate liturgy for the uh, Apostolic Scripture section. thought that that particular Torah section, Torah blessing from the prayer group, would actually just cover the entire study, whether we're studying Old Testament or New Testament. Make sense? Okay. If you're in the live class with me tonight, you'll see I've got Acts chapter 10 pulled up from the complete Jewish Bible, David Stern's translation. And um, the study itself is not very long. Um, 
five pages, and I'm what I've decided to do is stretch those five pages out over these next two weeks, and that way we'll have a clean break um, in our study, and we'll take that two-week break, semester break, and then when we return from the semester break, we'll be poised to cover the next topic in my Galatians study, which I think is, uh, we're going to look at under the law, a phrase found in Paul's writings. But for now, let's turn to Acts chapter 10. I'm going to read the entire passage here. Um, I'll read it tonight, and the next week I'll read it again. And this way, you'll I think you'll begin to see how it fits in with my Galatians notes. First, I'll read the passage. This is uh, CJB. And then I'll explain to you just briefly how it fits into um, the study to the book of Galatians. Let's read Acts chapter 10. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a Roman officer in what was called the Italian Regiment. He was a devout man, a God-fearer, as was his whole household. He gave generously to help the Jewish poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon around three o'clock, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming and saying to him, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at the angel, terrified. What is it, sir? He asked, your prayers, replied the angel, and your acts of charity have gone up into God's presence so that he has you on his mind. Now send some men to Yafo to bring back a man named Shimon, also called Kepha. He's staying with the uh, with Shimon the leather tanner who has a house by the sea. As the angel that had spoken to him went away, Cornelius called two of his household slaves and one of his military aides, who was a godly man. He explained everything to them and sent them to Yafo. The next day about noon, while they were still on their way and approaching the city, Kepha went up onto the roof of the house to pray. He began to feel hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing the meal, he fell into a trance in which he saw heaven opened and something that looked like a large sheet being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals, crawling creatures, and wild birds. Then a voice came to him. Get up, Kepha, slaughter and eat. But Kepha said, No, sir, absolutely not. I've never eaten food that was unclean or treif. The voice spoke to him a second time. Stop treating as unclean what God has made clean. This happened three times, and then the sheet was immediately taken back up into heaven. Kepha was still puzzling over the meaning of the vision he had seen when the men Cornelius had sent, having inquired for Shimon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask if Shimon, known as Kepha, was staying there. While Kepha's mind was still on the vision, the spirit said, Three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and have no misgivings about them, about going with them, because I myself have sent them. So Kepha went down and said to the men, You were looking for me? Here I am. What brings you here? They answered Cornelius. He's a... They answered, I'm sorry... Cornelius, he's a Roman army officer, an upright man and a God-fearer, a man highly regarded by the whole Jewish nation, and he was told by a holy angel to have you come to his house and listen to what you have to say. So Kepha invited them to be his guests. The next day he got up and went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Yafo. And he arrived at Caesarea the day after that. Cornelius was expecting them. He had already called together his relatives and close friends. As Kepha entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell prostrate at his feet. But Kepha pulled him to his feet and said, Stand up, I myself am just a man. As he talked with him, Kepha went inside and found many people gathered. He said to them, 
You are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people, or to come and visit him is something that just isn't done. But God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. So when I was summoned, I came without raising any questions. Tell me, then why did you send for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago around this time, I was at Mincha prayers in my house when suddenly a man in shining clothes stood in front of me and said, God has heard your prayer and remembered your acts of charity. Now send to uh, Yafo and ask for Shimon, known as Kiva. He's staying in the house of Shimon, a leather tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, all of us are here in the presence of God to hear everything the Lord has ordered you to say. Then Kepha addressed them, I now understand that God does not play favorites, but that whoever fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him, no matter what people he belongs to. Here is the message that he sent to the sons of Israel, announcing Shalom through Yeshua the Messiah, who is Lord of everything. You know that what has been going on throughout Yehuda, starting from the Galil after the immersion that Yochanan preached, how that God anointed Yeshua from Nazareth with the Ruach HaKodesh and with power, how Yeshua went about doing good and healing all the people oppressed by the adversary because God was with him. As for us, we are witnesses of everything he did, both in the Judean, uh, Judean countryside but and in Jerusalem. They did away with him by hanging him on a stake. God raised him up on the third day and let him be seen, not by all the people, but by witnesses God had previously chosen, that is, by us, who ate and drank with him after he had risen again from the dead. Then he commanded us to proclaim and attest to the Jewish people that this man has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. All the prophets bear witness to him that everyone who puts his trust in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Kepha was still saying these things when the Ruach HaKodesh fell on all who were hearing the message. All the believers from the circumcision faction who had accompanied Peter were amazed that the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh was also being poured out on the Guiyin, for they had heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Kepha's response was, Is anyone prepared to prohibit these people from being immersed in water? After all, they have received the Ruach HaKodesh just as we did. And he ordered that they be immersed in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. Then they asked Kepha to stay on with them for a few days. Okay, that's Acts chapter 10, 48 verses, not a long chapter. And I um, I read the chapter because we're going to be studying it in light of the Galatians commentary. Now you're asking, Ariel, how does this fit in with Galatians? If you haven't read my commentary and you don't know how it fits in, let me just tell you right up front. I think that what's going on in the book of Acts here is Peter getting the um, crash course in Gentile inclusion into Israel via faith in Yeshua instead of faith in one's uh, covenant position as a Jewish member of Israel. In other words, in the book of Galatians, we have been studying this idea of covenantal nomism and works of the law and you know from my um, uh, from reading my commentaries and listening to my podcast that I take this phrase covenantal nomism, which was coined by H.P. Sanders, and this phrase works of law, which we find in Paul, Ergon Namu, works of law, 
or works of law with Alpha the. Either way, it's fine. I'm fine with either uh, version of that. I take these phrases to refer to essentially a limited perspective of covenant membership as seen through the lens of first century Judaism, particularly the Judaisms that were contemporary with Paul. And essentially, from their perspective, from their limited uh, perspective and understanding of covenant membership, a person entered into the covenant by their birth status, that is to say, Jewish status. And a person stayed in the covenant or maintained their position in the covenant by keeping the commandments, by um, staying clear of um, idolatry, by making sure that you didn't get uh, cut off or excommunicated from the people of God. So basically, you got in by being a Jew, and you stayed in by doing the commandments and, and being a good Jew. So covenantal nomism, which we studied last week, covenantal nomism is a limited perspective of covenant membership uh, that is defined by Jewish ethnicity, which uh, drives a person's loyalty to the Torah. Thus, their nomistic service is um, is rooted in their uh, in their Jewish membership and in, in their covenant membership as a Jew. And works of the law is this coin that I've been describing with two sides. The first side being that Jewish ethnicity, and the second side of the coin being the works that people would describe as uh, Torah obedience. And remember. Um, chief to my premise is that I don't believe that first century Israel felt that they got in, using the language of E.P. Sanders again, they didn't get in by being obedient to the Torah. They got in by God's grace, by election. They got in by being Jewish. Rather, they stayed in, they maintained their covenant position by keeping the Torah. And this, of course, is a far different perspective than the traditional Christian viewpoints on the book of Galatians, which traditionally teach that the Jewish people were trying to get in by keeping the Torah. I don't know how the Christian church teaches that they would stay in. Perhaps it's probably the same thing. Get in by keeping the Torah and stay in by keeping the Torah. Probably that's what the that's probably how the Christian commentaries are going to read it. I, I haven't really um, seen it uh, verbalized or uh, articulated the way I'm describing it. At least I, I know for sure that they teach that Jewish people got in by keeping the Torah. And I maintain that that's a fundamentally flawed um, position to uh, take. Uh, it has manifold problems with it. Not not the least of which it's, it's offensive to Jewish people. It's offensive to people who try to keep the Torah. And um, I think it's a better place, a better way to interpret the scriptures if we uh, uh, account for the fact that uh, covenant nomism was probably the way that's, that, that the scriptures are being interpreted. So when we look at the book of Acts here, we see essentially the same problem. Peter basically has the same problem, if you'll notice, in the uh, passage that I just read. That's what's going on. Um, before I jump into my own commentary, one more word about this uh passage in the book of Acts, it's no secret that if you turn to your standard Christian commentary to the book of Acts, that um, essentially the position is going to be presented that what's going on in this chapter is that Peter is being told by God to take a, make a break from the dietary laws, to essentially break from keeping kosher, and to start enjoying the freedom of Messiah to be able to eat whatever he wants to. And uh, they drive, they derive this interpretation from... I'm scrolling up into the passage again. 
they they derive this interpretation from um, verse uh, four, uh, 13, 14, 15, where Peter is told to rise, kill, and eat by the voice. And Peter objects in verse 14, uh, I've never eaten any food that was common or unclean. And then in verse 15, the, the, the commandment is given, um, stop treating as unclean what God has made clean. And so, based on this uh, statement of the voice in verse 15, the traditional Christian exegesis of the passage is that God is cleansing that which was formerly unclean, i.e. Leviticus chapter 11, Deuteronomy chapter 14, where we have a list of clean and unclean animals. And because the voice tells Peter, stop treating as unclean what God has made clean, therefore the interpretation goes in that direction that God is cleansing the food. But we know that that interpretation is weak. We know it's weak for a number of reasons, but not least of which is that Peter himself tells us later on in the chapter what the vision means. And what does Peter say? He says in verse... And I'll jump into my own commentary after this. He says in verse... Um, let me scroll down to it. Uh, let's see, okay. He, he says it twice, by the way. Once in verse 28, God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. So the, we see there that Peter catches the vision. He understands then that God is not referring to... A, uh, animals and food. God is actually using a picture, uh, kind of like a parable. Not well, not really a parable, but um, it's it's a vision. Let's just put it that way. It's a vision where there are symbols. It's symbolic language, just like the uh, the prophetic language of old, and just like say John the Revelator's language in the Book of Revelations. It's symbols. He's using symbols to describe something greater. And so God tells Peter not to call any man common or unclean. And then again, later on down in um, down in verse 34, uh, when Peter's addressing Cornelius and his family, uh, Peter says, I now understand that God does not play favorites, but that whoever fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him, no matter what people he belongs to. Again, same message. And that message is the one that I'm going to center on in my commentary. Uh, because that's how it fits into Acts chapter... I'm sorry, that's how it fits into the book of Galatians. So, let's read from my own commentary. Again, five pages long for this topic section, but we're only going to cover half of it tonight, and then we're going to break it off and, and cover the other half next week. And this will give us a clean break, and we'll be ready for... Um, this will give us a clean break for the semester. All right, topic number six, which is corresponds with page 53 in my written commentary... Remember, the, the written commentary itself is about 180-odd pages long, so we're, we're making our way paragraph by paragraph. Lesson from Acts chapter 10. The poison of ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism permeated the first century Jewish society. Um, let me just pause just briefly. Ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism. I think I coined that term, so if you do a Google search for that exact term in quotes, ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism, I think the only hits you're going to get are hits from my commentary, because I made that term up. But it's not too hard to, um, not too difficult to understand what the term is implying. Ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism is basically the covenantal nomism, the works of law uh, perspective that teaches that the that God is the God of the Jews only, that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Israel only, that the Torah is the Torah for Jews only, and that covenant members are Jews only. So everything is kind of um, anchored in Jewish ethnicity. 
and therefore if you wanted to belong to if you wanted to be a people belong to the people of God enjoy the blessings of God walk in the promises of God um, be able to read the Torah of God um, and uh, inherit a place in the world to come. In first century Israel, you had to become a Jew. And if you weren't already born a Jew, the only route you could take was to, um, well, the primary route you could take was proselytism. You had to become a proselyte and go through the ceremony and become a Jew. Um, so let's keep reading. A careful reading of the Greek of Acts chapter 10 and Kepha's conversation with Hashem will show that this simple Fisherman was also blinded by the prevailing halakha that sought to avoid Gentiles at all costs. Firstly, allow me to uh, define the important Greek words that we're going to encounter during this selection. Now, another premise that I make with this particular commentary, and it's a bold leap for some who have read the, the passage in the book of Acts and thought to themselves, um, I don't see where you're going to get, I don't see how you're going to um, go logically from where you go from A to B in your commentary, Ariel. Um, your logic seems to make a leap. Well, here's where my logic is grounded, or where it's rooted in. I actually um, propose that if you read certain parts of the Greek, you don't have to read the entire passage in Greek, which is why I didn't. But if you read certain words, if you study the passage and you have the ability to access the some of the Greek words behind some of the verses that I'm going to highlight for you in tonight's study, I think it will become apparent um, from the Greek, from these particular words, these keywords, I think it becomes apparent that what Peter is dealing with is uh, the same concept behind um, uh, Galatians. In other words, the standard uh, Christian uh, interpretation that I just described a moment ago, where where um, essentially the church, the Gentile church, believes that Peter is leaving the dietary laws behind in favor of of some law of Christ or whatnot. Um, I think that it cannot be sustained, at least from the Greek reading here. So, in essence, we're going to get two lessons in one tonight. That's the point I'm trying to make. There's two lessons in one. All right. One of the lessons that we're going to catch is the fact that um, Peter has to deal with the same um, socially, uh, socially religious and culturally restrictive views of covenant membership um, that Paul had to deal with albeit Peter deals with it in a different way because the, the way God pulls him into the vision and then uh, uh, parks him right in front of Cornelius, who happens to be a Gentile. So Peter and Cornelius have to kind of hash it out in that way, whereas Paul simply sits down and writes theological letters and sends them to the churches and deals with it like that. So that's one of the lessons we're going to deal with tonight. But there's... a there's another lesson, a sub-theme that's running underneath the, the primary Galatians message, and that sub-theme is disproving the um, traditional Christian position that the law has been done away with. Um, so those are the two things that you're, we're going to encounter in um, this commentary tonight. Look at the bullet points that I've got in my, um, in my notes. If you're not in the class with me tonight, just listen up. Uh, I threw in the Strong's numbers just in case you wanted to go back and look these up on your own and see, uh, do your own uh, additional study. Strong's number 5399, phobeo, is a verb, and it coupled with Strong's number 2316, theon, is a noun, masculine, and it equals feared plus God. So we have fear plus God, in essence, God-fearer. That's one of the words, one of the, the uh, terms. The next term is uh, Strong's number 2840, which is koinao, and it's a verb. It means to make 
common to make Levitically unclean, render unhallowed, defile, profane. Um, I think these are from the TSBD, if I'm correct. Thayer's and Smith's Bible Dictionary gives provides these definitions. The next term is 2839 from Strong's Numbers. It's uh, koinos. It's an adjective, and it is defined as common, in essence, ordinary, belonging to generality by the Jews, unhallowed or profane. The next term is uh, Strong's number 2511, which is a katharizo. It's a verb, and it means, or it's defined as to make clean, cleanse, consecrate, dedicate, purify, whether morally or ritually. Uh, The next term is Strong's number 111, uh, athematos, which is an adjective, and it's defined as contrary to law, justice, illicit, i.e. taboo. And then the last term that we're just going to use uh, explicitly is uh, Strong's number 169, which is akathartos, uh, and it's an adjective. It is uh, defined by the TSBD as unclean, ceremonially, that which must be abstained from according to Levitical law or foul. Okay, having made us aware of the language of Luke's narrative, let us pick up the study from my previous commentary to Acts chapter 10. That's right, this is actually a an excerpt, kind of a, this is really more or less an excursus in the middle of my Galatians commentary to this topic in Acts chapter 10. It's actually part of a longer commentary, not much longer though, it's five pages as the excerpt, but the original commentary itself is only maybe 10 pages, so I, I took half of the whole commentary and threw it into the uh, Galatians commentary. But you can find the entire commentary, if you want, on my website at tatesaytorah.com. All right, um, I'm going to ask some questions and, and provide some answers so that we can dialogue uh, in the direction that I want to go. Question, while the vision of the food is clearly in view, when Hashem responds to Kifa's refusal... He only instructs Kifa not to call common koinao, that which he, God, has cleansed, katharizo. Why doesn't Hashem also teach Kifa not to call unclean a kathartos, that which God has ostensibly cleansed, katharizo? That's the first question. Here's my answer. Um, Obviously, God has not cleansed katharizo, those animals that he created to be declaratively unclean, a kathartos. If I, Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi, the author of this commentary, could convey this single important point to your average Christian pastor, then we would not be having this conversation at all. The vision is just that, a vision. The proof that God is not truly altering Kepha's paradigm in regards to food, but rather to non-Jews, is borne out by the careful attention to not mention Akathertos in verse 15. Yet, by his rule Kodesh, impress Kepha to utilize the word Akathertos in regards to non-Jews in verse 28. So you see there's some um, there's uh, some important words there, I think, that the Holy Spirit is superintended well, when Luke records this story for us. Uh, let's keep reading. The Levitical definition of permitted and forbidden animals, as outlined in chapter 11, cannot change. That's my premise. God remains the same both yesterday, today, and forever. Why would he need to change the rules governing the, de- the definition of food with the arrival of his son? It makes nonsense to suppose such a reading of Acts chapter 10. And at the time that I wrote this, I have to interject, at the time that I wrote this particular commentary, I think this point, this part of Acts chapter 10, 
I actually wrote this commentary to Acts chapter 10. Oh, Lord, uh, goodness, probably uh, 15 years ago, maybe. So, I wrote it before I even studied the book of Galatians. Um, at least before I wrote the commentary to the book of Galatians. So, I was. I, this was actually originally kind of a sermon, so there's a lot of heated language in this. It's short, it's terse, it's to the point. If you're reading the commentary, there's a lot of exclamation points. But I don't want you to take it as me yelling, is the point I'm trying to make. Um, it makes nonsense to suppose such a reading of Acts chapter 10. I've got an exclamation point there, right? Like I'm yelling. I'm not really yelling, but I am trying to be emphatic because I don't understand how the Christian church can support their understanding of Acts chapter 10 that teaches that essentially the law is done away with, particularly the dietary restrictions have been lifted. Let's keep reading. To be sure, if God were supposedly changing the rules... Giving the information to a country bumpkin like Kepha, and in a vision no less, is the wrong way to go about doing it. Wouldn't you agree? And uh, in past teachings, I've stopped and just had to comment and laugh at myself. Yes, I called Kepha a country bumpkin. We should not suppose that this is a mystery hidden from the Jewish people only now to be revealed after his son has gone to the execution stake on the same level as the mystery of the gospel that the Gentiles are now to be welcomed into Israel as full-fledged covenant members if they place their trust in Yeshua. In fact, I've read that in, in a commentary, or maybe I heard it from a pastor who taught on Acts chapter 10 and, and said, well, the reason that the Jewish people, such as Peter in, in, in the first century, the reason they had such a hard time um, dealing with the fact that God was uh, bringing the law to an end and lifting the restrictions on, on what you could eat was because this was a mystery that was hidden to Israel uh, when he gave the Torah to them uh, you know, 1,500 years earlier. And now this mystery is being unfolded and revealed in the book of Acts to us Gentile believers that we no longer have to keep the Torah and that we no longer have to worry about keeping kosher. It was a mystery to Israel, and now it's being revealed before our very eyes. That was the... Um, uh, premise that he was going with. Let's keep reading. Next question. If Hashem is not cleansing, katharidzo, unclean akathartos animals, then what is he cleansing? Right? We know he's cleansing something. How are we to understand the vision? Here's the answer. I personally believe, and this is key, so just listen up, I personally believe that Kifa's interpretation of his own vision is the best and most important interpretation offered. Right? Makes sense? Hello. If we want to know what the, what the, what the vision means, let's not 2,000 years later come up with our own ideas. Why not ask the man whom the vision was shown to in the first place? Let's ask him, what did the vision mean, Peter? And namely, here's what it means. What Hashem has designated as kosher, fit for consumption, and treif, not fit for consumption, in the Torah of Moshe, concerning food, still remains clean, the Hebrew word is tahor, and unclean, the Hebrew word is tameh, respectively. Although the sheet contained all manner of animals, I believe what Hashem is trying to get Kifa to understand is that the animals represent all manner of peoples, not the literal animals themselves. And I think that this interpretation, the one I just offered, is in accord with the unchangeable nature of Hashem, Right, we're going to read a few passages. Um, to be sure, is this not how Kepha interprets the vision himself in verses 28, 34, and 35? Let's read those three verses and see if my supposition is accurate. Verse 28, um, he said to them, 
this is Kiva, you are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people or to come and visit him is something that just isn't done. But God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. I don't remember which version that is. I have to look that up again. But it's not David Stern's version. And we're going to... Um, we're going to... Uh, well, we're going to see which version it is here in a moment. We're going to highlight and park out on why uh, we need to uh, center and focus our attention on this verse for a moment. But let's keep reading these two other verses. Verse 34 and 35 read, Then Kepha addressed them. I think this is actually... Um, uh, no matter people, what people belong to. I think this is actually uh, CJB. Then Kiva addressed them, I now understand that God does not play favorites, but that whoever fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him, no matter what people he belongs to. All right. So, if you'll see, if you've got the written commentary in front of you, you'll see that I highlighted um, a few phrases in those, two, in those three verses. In verse 28, I highlight the phrase, God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. And then in verse 34, I highlight, God does not play favorites. And in verse 35, I, I highlight, no matter what people he belongs to. So you see from those uh, highlighted phrases there in those two verses, that essentially this is the interpretation of the vision. This is what God is really trying to tell Peter. And this is how Peter interprets the vision. It's about people. It's about people. It's not about food. The, the animals were just symbols. The the all manner of animals that are on the sheet are just to symbolize all manner of people groups that are on the earth in God's eyes. And from the perspective of the Jews, anyone who was not a Jew was essentially uh, labeled as the category of other. Right. So in, in Peter's worldview, you had two groups of people on the earth that day. You had Jewish people and other. And it didn't matter what country or ethnicity, or um, tribe, or um, whatnot that you came from, as long as you weren't Jewish, then you were categorized as other. And um, that's why we see Peter saying, uh, God has told me not to call any person common or unclean, and then he says, God does not play favorites, no matter what people he belongs to. I think the Greek in verse 35 of people there he belongs to, is uh, it's not the, the regular uh, Greek word ethnos, which we get Gentile. I think it, it's it's a word that, um, uh, if I remember right, it, it's a word that conveys tribal identification, whatever, no matter what tribe he belongs to, something to that effect. We'll look that up a little later. But let's keep reading my commentary. Uh, the next question, but I thought that the Torah forbade Jews from having contact with Gentiles. Isn't that what Kepha explicitly tells his Gentile associates in verse 28, which you quoted above? Um, so basically I've got this imaginary opponent that is asking me, the Torah teacher, questions, and I'm supplying the answers, and this is how I'm um, uh, uh, directing the flow of my dialogue. So the questioner asks me, didn't you just quote a passage that, where Peter says that, is, um, that the Torah forbade Gentiles from having close contact, right? Didn't I just read that? Well, here's my answer. Observe Acts chapter 10, verse 28, in 10 various yet common English translations, and the original Greek word athematos has been identified in, and underlined in each version. So we're going to look at this word athematos, which, recall, um, let me scroll back up for a split second. Uh, recall, athematos is, has been defined as Strong's number 111, contrary to law and justice illicit, i.e. 
taboo. Contrary, contrary to law, contrary to social uh, norms. So let's see what um, let's see how my answer plays out. So we've got ten different versions. First one is the New American Standard Bible. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man holy or unclean. And the word unlawful, which I've got underlined in the written commentary, is our Greek word of Themetos. The next version, God's Word translation, he said to them, You understand how wrong it is for a Jewish man to associate or visit with anyone of another race, but God has shown me that I should no longer call anyone impure or unclean. The word wrong is our Greek word of thematos. Uh, the KJV is the next one. It reads, And he said unto them, you know, Ye know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or to come unto one of another nation. But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Um, and the phrase unlawful thing is a thematos. Next version is the American Standard Version. And he said unto them, Ye yourselves know how it is an unlawful thing. There's our phrase there, uh, thematos, unlawful thing. For a man that is a Jew to join himself or to come unto one of another nation, and yet unto me hath God showed that I should not call any man common or unclean. The next version, the Bible in basic English. Quote, and he said to them, You yourselves have knowledge that it is against the law. That phrase against the law is the thematos. For a man who is a Jew to be in the company of one who is another nation. But God has made it clear to me that no man may be, may, no man may be named common or unclean. The next version, the Darby Bible translation, reads, And he said to them, Ye know how it is unlawful, and that word unlawful is the thematos, for a Jew to be joined or to come to one of a strange race, and to me, God is shown to call no man common or unclean. The next version is the, uh, I think it's Weymouth, but it reads like Weymouth. At least that's how it's spelled. Uh, their New Testament translation reads, He said to them, You know better than most that a Jew is strictly forbidden, that phrase strictly forbidden is a thematos, to associate with a Gentile or visit him, but God has taught me to call no one unholy or unclean. Uh, the next version is Webster Bible Translation. And he said to them, You know, I'm sorry, ye know that it is an unlawful thing. That phrase unlawful thing, you guessed it, athematos. For a man that is a Jew to keep company or come to one of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. All right, two more translations. The next one is the World English Bible. He said to them, you yourselves know how it is an unlawful thing. Again, as in many of the other translations, unlawful thing is our Greek word of thematos. For a man who is a Jew to join himself or come to one of another nation, but God has shown me that I shouldn't call any man unholy or unclean. And the last translation in this list of ten is Young's literal translation, which reads, And he said unto them, Ye know how it is unlawful, that phrase unlawful is a thematos, for a man, a Jew, to keep company with or to come unto one of another race, but to me, God did show to call no man common or unclean. Okay, here's what I say in my commentary. Here's the reason why I read ten different versions, all right? And I think um, after this uh, explanation, let me look at the commentary here. Actually, I think this is where I want to pause. This is where I want to part, stop the commentary. We've got about 10 minutes left in the hour, and uh, 
I, I go on to start explaining why I read these ten versions, and then it, it, it goes on to es- essentially give you the conclusion to this particular section. And so I, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to take up every, all the material that I need to, uh, save for next week. So let's actually stop there. Um, keep in mind that as we're studying through the book of Galatians, I find it helpful to, uh, to have what should be a, a basic, uh, a basic hermeneutic, um, foundational understanding of or assumption or presumption or presupposition or thesis or position whatever you want to call it to have something in view that you want to test um, read the passage and then um, test your thesis read the passage and look through commentaries and um, sharpen your understanding and so when I read through the book of uh, when I read through this passage in the Acts chapter 10, if I have, if I'm working from the presupposition that the Jewish people in in, in Peter's day, <clears throat> um, if I'm working from the presupposition that in the first century in Peter's day, that Jewish people already considered that Gentile people groups were a bit suspect when it comes to um, ritual purity, when it came to covenant membership. Uh, in God's program, things like that, when it can, specifically when it comes to keeping Torah. If I'm already working from that position, which I in fact am, then it becomes easier for me to see the central themes of the passage jump out to me. In other words, let, let me stop and just, um, because I'm, I'm using up the, the, the uh, ten minutes that's left in the hour here, and I don't want to jump into the commentary, so this gives me a little bit, uh, about, you know, about five minutes to uh, actually just fill in with some of uh, uh, my own thoughts without reading my notes here. Uh, we'll pick up the uh, commentary on the bottom of page 55, uh, next week, and we'll finish out. It's only one page, so it'll probably be a shorter study next week. But basically, here's what I'm what I'm trying to say. As I sit and listen to traditional Christian commentaries on the book of Galatians, um, Galatians being one of the earliest books in the New Testament, if I start with the assumption that Jesus has come to do away with the law, and that he fulfilled the law so that I no longer have to concentrate on walking in the Torah and walking into the commandments of God routinely and walking into the ritual aspects of the law. If Jesus nailed it to the cross, if, if according to Paul, we're no longer under the law but we're under grace, and I interpret that phrase under the law as no longer under obligation to uh, maintain Torah obedience, if that is the position that I approach the New Testament so-called with, if I start with that assumption, then it's natural that when I read the book of Galatians, I'm going to see Paul discouraging Gentile Christians from having to keep the law, and I'm going to interpret his phrases, works of the law, as um, generic good works done for the sake of trying to be saved. I'm, I'm going to interpret his warnings against circumcision and the like in the book of Galatians as warnings against trying to go back under the meritorious um, works-based righteousness. But I'm also going to read the book of Acts, and I'm naturally going to assume that the vision is confirmation that Jesus has set aside the law, relaxed the Torah of Moses, and that Jews and Gentiles no longer have to keep it, at least for the most part Gentile Christians. I'm, I'm, I've... (laughs) 
I'm not quite sure what the traditional Christian position is on Jews still keeping the law, even though they come to believe in Jesus, because I get differing, um, I hear differing perspectives on that. Some Gentile Christians tell me that gen- that Jews and Jesus can still keep the law, and other Gentile Christians tell me that Je- Jews and Jesus should stop keeping the law. So I don't think I have a unified uh, message on that side. But we we do seem to have a unified voice when it comes to Gentile Christians no longer being obligated to keep the law. Thus, Sa- Seventh-day Sabbath keeping is no longer emphasized in Christian circles. Um, Sunday keeping becomes the standard emphasis instead. There is a de-emphasis on kosher, and thus Acts chapter 10, which we just uh, exegeted, just a brief part of it, seems to um, support the view that uh, the vision doesn't necessarily and primarily deal with people groups, although Peter interprets it that way, so you can't get away from that. So I, I don't have many pastors... Uh, outright saying that the vision cannot refer to people because obviously Peter says that the vision refers to people. But what we have um, many Christian commentaries supplying is the gratuitous explanation that the the vision also includes the uh, lifting of the dietary laws. And thus, when God said to Peter, rise, kill, and eat, and don't call it uh, common what I've cleansed, don't call unclean what I've called on what I've cleansed, etc., etc., then essentially the uh, traditional uh, uh, Christian interpretation reads that literally. God is cleansing the dietary li- issues. And I, I take umbrage with that because of the um, nature of the vision. If If God were actually cleansing the dietary issues that he had written down, that he had Moshe carefully write down in Acts, I'm sorry, that he had Moshe carefully write down in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. It seems hard, It seems highly unlikely, at least in my understanding of the way God deals with um, central truths of the Bible, it seems highly unlikely that that core understanding of covenant membership in Israel the, the dietary laws themselves. It's highly unlikely, in my opinion, that God would use a vision, number one, and to an unlearned man such as Peter, number two, to convey a central cultural element of the Torah, a central religious element, a ritual element of the Torah, such as the dietary laws, to, to uproot Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 with a vision to a fisherman. See my point? It's, it, it doesn't seem to fit God's MO. <laughs> right? It, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. God can do whatever he wants with his truths. He could have done it. He could have done it that way. He could have, could have revealed to Peter 1,500 years after he gave the, the, the law to, to, to Moses and to and and to the leader of his of Israel, who have been safeguarding this written truth, and I'm highlighting this, I'm emphasizing the fact that that Torah was given to a people group, that it was uh, under the supervision of Moses himself, that it was that it was the responsibility of the leaders and the prophets and the priests of Israel to to disseminate the written word 
of God to the people so that they could walk in it. And the careful attention to detail that uh, the book of Moses, particularly the book of Leviticus, provides for us when it comes to God explaining painstakingly what you can eat, what you can't eat, you know, the land animals, the birds, the fish, um, uh, what we call the uh, the symptomology, how that we're able to, to to identify as Israel what animals we should ingest, what animals we should avoid, identify by the characteristics not only of the animals, you know whether the fish have scales, fins and scales, whether the the uh, the animal chews its cud, whether it walks on all fours, or whether it hops off the ground, as far as the insects are concerned. All of this was given in painstaking detail by God in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, only to to ostensibly be uprooted in a vision to a fisherman. See my point? It it's it seems highly unlikely that the God, that that's what God's doing. Um, it, it, you know, it, it it would seem to be God's um, preference if He really were doing away with the Torah there. To actually have another prophet come along and write it down, maybe give it to Paul, um, a Torah teacher, have him write it down, uh, give it, give him a whole chapter, you know, dedicate uh, a theological uh, chapter to it, like he did in the Book of Romans, where he takes his time and and it's not a vision; it's actually the words of God that are impressed upon his his um, his uh, lucid mind, not. Not a fuzzy vision. I mean, let me just go back real quick. I've got a few minutes left. Look at the language um, in Acts 10. Um, let me highlight verse 17. After the vision is given, and after the voice tells them, um, rise, kill, and eat, and after Peter's objection, uh, no, I've never eaten anything food that was uh, common or unclean, unclean or un- uh, common or unclean, um, notice in verse uh, 17, Peter was still puzzling over the meaning of the vision. Why was he puzzling? Ever stop to think about that? I mean, if it were so plain, number one, it's a vision. Number two, if it were supposed to be crystal clear like, like Leviticus 11 and, and Deuteronomy 14, if it were crystal clear like the written word of God is supposed to be, why was it given in a vision, and why was why did it confuse him? Well, why was he puzzling? Because I think Peter was 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 mulling together the written word of God in his mind and thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think Peter was doing what I'm doing right now. Peter was going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't God's mo. This isn't how God operates. If God wants us to to um, catch a very important truth that's going to be central to the lifestyle of every single Israelite from this point forward. Shouldn't God be giving this to a, a premier prophet? Shouldn't God be giving this to maybe one of the, the high priests of, of, of the temple? Or shouldn't God be, um, shouldn't God have conveyed this to the master, Yeshua, and he uh, conveyed it to his disciples, the twelve, and then we spread this message as we were um, going uh, to all the nations and preaching the gospel? Remember the Great Commission in Matthew, at the end of the book of Matthew? Shouldn't though, I think those are the thoughts that would have been going through Peter's mind, and that's why I think Luke wrote Kepha was still puzzling over the meaning of the vision. In other words, if it's clear that God is uplifting the dietary restrictions and that that the vision has nothing to do with people, but has instead primarily to do with animals, 
then why was he puzzling over the meaning, right? I think that's that's telling, in, in my opinion. And then also, um, uh, uh, there's another point that I wanted to bring up, but I can't find it at the moment in the short time that I have, so I think I'll stop there. Um, I think it's safe to say that we've just taken a bite out of this passage. I'd like you to go back and read Acts chapter 10 on your own again. Read chapter 11 as well. I didn't have the time to read both of them back to back, but chapter 11 is the continuing story, uh, or in to use today's um, language, it's the sequel, right? It's the sequel to Acts chapter 10. Um, it would be a second movie of this for Hollywood, right? Acts chapter 10 would be the first movie, and then they'd rake in millions, and then they'd make a sequel with Acts chapter 11. But basically, Acts chapter 11 is the continuing uh, dialogue that Luke has recorded for us, where Peter has to explain himself to the leaders in Jerusalem, particularly those Jewish leaders who were still holding to the um, social taboo that it was... that that interaction with Gentiles, uh, social interaction, social fellowship with Gentiles wasn't something that people should be doing. And that's essentially um, the teaser that I'm going to give you for next week. Uh, remember where we left off in my commentary in uh, near the bottom of page 56. Um, we're going to look, I'm sorry, near the t- bottom of page 55. Uh, this verse that we're going to look at um, you know that it's unlawful. We're going to talk about this. It, was it really unlawful for Jews to keep company with Gentiles? And if so, is that what the book of Galatians is about? Paul explaining to the Gentiles now that it's no longer unlawful for Jews and Gentiles to stay together because the Torah has been done away with? In other words, it seems to fit the bill, right? This, this would seem to be a perfect way to explain the book of Galatians. And this would be a a traditional Christian understanding. Again, here's what it would sound like. Because the Torah forbids relationships between Jews and Gentiles, the Torah forbids Jews from, from social interaction, from table fellowship with Gentiles, God, in through his Messiah, has done away with the law, and therefore... It's no longer wrong to socialize with with uh, Gentiles, for Jews to socialize with Gentiles. Therefore, because the law is done away with and we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, Jews and Gentiles can come together as never before. And therefore, the book of Galatians is all about Paul explaining to the Gentile Christians how that um, the Torah has been relaxed and now that the, the new people group of God is actually Jews and Gentiles together in one body. And um, interestingly... There's a little bit of truth in that assumption, in that position. And so I can't completely throw it out and dismiss it altogether. So we'll talk about that next week. But for now, let me dismiss in prayer. And for those of you who are in the live study, stay with me. I think we'll try and go over to Skype again like we did last week and see if maybe that I can make that a common practice uh, if it seems to work out. Um, then for those of you who are in the live class who can join me on Skype, um, Go ahead and get ready to log into your Skype accounts. Those of you who are in the live class who, who don't have Skype and aren't able to join me, or you, you have Skype but you don't have a microphone on your computer, um, I apologize. Uh, it would be nice to be able to dialogue with you. Um, you can still join me on Skype. You just won't be able to talk. You just have to type everything. Um, but I think this will, might be a, a way for uh, those students who are live to actually express their thoughts 
using their voice instead of typing everything. So, we'll see if we can make this somewhat standard practice. Let's close in prayer. Avina Malkanu, our Father, our King, Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to sit before the students once again. Lord, I thank you for the counting of the Omer. I bless you, Father, for the season that we're in, because it reminds me of the link between Passover and Pentecost. Exactly, I believe, the way that the Holy Spirit uh, designed that link to be observed. Lord, we are set free by the Messiah, by the blood of Messiah, and that is the picture typified by the story of Passover, the season of our freedom, the season of our deliverance. And then as we count our way to Pentecost with the counting of the Omer, which links the two festivals together as bookends, as it were, when we get to Pentecost, we are reminded of the giving of the Torah as well as the commemoration of the outport spirit in Acts chapter 2. And I believe, Lord, that it was designed to remind us that being set free in Messiah is designed to lead towards being filled with the Spirit of Messiah. And so, Lord, help me to concentrate and to focus on these two central truths. Not peripheral. Lord, these are central to my walk as a child of the King. These are central to my um, place in the body of Messiah. I have been set free by Jesus, and now I'm being filled with the Spirit of Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, for this awesome opportunity. Continue to raise me up as a teacher and give me a voice. Help me to be circumspect. Help me to take this position seriously as I sit before the students week after week and share my thoughts. Help me to to encourage them, to uplift them, to um, help, uh, um, challenge them to press in further uh, with their walk with Yeshua. Thank you, Lord, that you are raising us up for this time and that you're showing us your words. Bless you, Father, for all these things. Bring us back together next week, and we'll be careful to give you the praise. Bashem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.
www.thepowerhouse.com.